breaking news. This is hot off of the presses. This is an emergency Pod Damn America podcast. Uh, I'm just getting this on my news desk now. I'm reaching across the news desk. This is from a trusted source in media. It says, a lot of y'all still don't get it. Ape holders can use multiple slurp juices on a single ape. So if you have one astro ape and three slurp juices, you can create three new apes. Tonight's slurp juice mint event is essentially a minting event for both lab monkeys without a Y and special forces. And then below that is a picture of an ape in what appears to be Aztec warrior garb. Folks, this is not a joke. You can officially combine your slurp juice with your apes. You could be creating extra apes right now as you listen to this podcast. Welcome back to the show. It's Pod Dame America. Anders Lee here. I don't know about our listeners. Part of that intro uh, got frozen. Oh, well, I'll have it on my end because I'm recording okay. on my computer. But, <laughs> but I'm sorry about that. Yeah, the apes. <laughs> you can make new apes. Just trust me on it. Um, I'm here today live with Anders Lee. It's Alex and Anders, a special episode. That's right. Out with his heart in a blender and could not be here to support women today. Yes, yes. He is uh, hanging with the Eve Six guy. Getting, I'm actually going planning on seeing them tonight. Excited to hear Santa Monica live for the first time. Santa Monica? Isn't that by Everclear? Live beside the ocean. Leave the past behind. Oh, my girlfriend is shaking her head at my. It's sing, ever beautiful clear. You're not gonna. You're not gonna get to see it. But I hope they play it anyway. It's a great song. It's a hit. Of, it's the hit of the nineties. Is that song like? I'm just a scared white boy in a black neighborhood. That's father of mine. Oh yeah, it's almost the same song as the yeah. Thing, I remember but... my sister saying to me in the nineties. I was like, "Why are all those songs sound the same?" And they're like, "She was like, that's the point." Everclear, all the songs. <laughs> you dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> we want them to sound like that. Yeah. <laughs> we love that sound. <laughs> yeah. And she was right. I agree with her. Um, in other news, aside from the Astro Ape slurp development, um, there has been a leak from a Supreme Court hearing. Uh, the, the case of Dobbs versus Jackson will likely... Uh, the ruling of that will likely end up reversing Roe versus Wade when that comes out. And uh, if you're following the case at all, we all know the real story is that you can't leak Supreme Court hearings, guys. Come on. What Big are deal. law clerks for? Big deal. And I'm trying to think, and I think it would be, uh, I think it would be no. But I'm trying to think, would I care if the Supreme Court made a decision that I agreed with, which is a big if, uh, would I be mad about the same thing? And I think probably not because no. who, who cares? You Everything know, this- about the Supreme Court, and this c- comes up every six months, is such nerd shit that I could never <laughs> be bothered with, even if it tangibly affects my life with what we're ruling, which happens all the time because they deal with very severe and grandiose matters. But it's just all, if you read section 4-C, you'll see that, Actually, you need a uh, press release before your leak. And it's shut up, man. I see your powdered wig. I don't want to talk about that right now, you nerd. I mean, so one of the people is who is suspected is a liberal law clerk 
who uh, I guess we're not supposed to name this person's name, but the right wing name them. And if you see them, hunt them down. This is a pod damn America decree. Hunt them down to, you know, give them a high five and shelter. Um, They're going after them. They're going to, I don't want to yeah say they're going to George Tiller this person's ass, but they could. Uh, They're very mad about it. I don't know if they would treat them the same as an abortionist, um, but they are, are furious at this breach. I would not be too concerned about constitutional originalists pursuing me. I, I don't I think that's a less fearsome group than abor- anti-abortion zealots sure. <laughs> and religious nuts. You know, like they're just going to show up and then debate you about <laughs> Washington's uh, anti-party stances and the formation of this great nation. Yeah. We talk well, about this another... later. The concept of the Supreme Court is just a uh, Enlightenment era abortion. It is <laughs> no longer applicable. No one believes in the concept of it, which is that you can get nine people to to come and uh, sit themselves at the highest office in the land, and then also put politics and parties aside and just act as a empty vessel that carries out book learning for all the people of the land. No one thinks that anymore. There's another theory that it could be a conservative law clerk who is doing it to keep the right-wing justices in line. Because, oh, that's pretty smart. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, the history of the court, because, you know, there was Earl Warren and uh, I think Sandy O'Connor. Sandy! Um, Rehnquist, like a lot of conservative justices who were appointed by Republican presidents, confirmed by the S- Senate, and then just kind of went, were much more liberal capital L lowercase L than uh than people Both. thought. Yeah. Um, and but since then there has been uh, all sorts of societies, many Catholic sort of situations have popped up to groom and procure the correct decisions from the judges to make sure they have like the, the exact sort of fanatical interpretation that the far right does. Um those are people like Kavanaugh and ACAB, ACB. Um, but Roberts is kind of the question mark. So I think this may have been a move to discipline him to make sure he doesn't jump ship. Um, but it may have also been one of the judges. Maybe it was Sotomayor just giving the people some warning and telling them that they have to prepare for this uh, terrible decision. Right. Which one of the judge? Which one of the nine um, loves drama the most? Yeah, it's it. Th- this has precedent, though. The first Roe v. Wade, there were things that were leaked by, I believe, the justices themselves. And um, actually, one of the most outrageous things about this that I believe will inspire all sorts of outcry in my hometown of St. Paul is there were several players involved in the original decision that are from St. Paul. Uh, one of the abortion doctors who was, I believe, involved in the case was a woman from St. Paul. Two of the Supreme Court justices, one of them named Blackman, uh, were from St. Paul and had grown up together in St. Paul. And there were, li- again, liberal Republicans who made this call. And uh, I'm connecting I- the strings on my Minnesota cork board. There's going to be, I tell you, just blood in the streets. People are going to be outraged in STP because this is, for a lot of St. Paul, 
this is our big claim to fame is that we have ro- a direct connection to Roe v. Wade. So people are going to be very mad that that's going to be taken away that from rocks. the city of St. Paul. And they're going to be out on the streets burning cars. Um, actually, the justices, a little fun fact, were called the Minnesota Twins. Is that true? Yeah. You guys have nickname. so much fun over there. I'm so jealous. My girlfriend but, um, is is putting a finger gun in her mouth and pulling the trigger as she wears a Minnesota Twins sweatshirt. Oh, my gosh. You got her ass. Now she's taking it off. Even, even her sweatshirt knows it's Minnesota mode. Well, that's a fascinating history, Anders. Uh, today we have a, uh, a long and a, a intellectual discussion, you could say, with comedian writer Natalie Shore coming back on the show. We sure talking do. the history of Roe v. Wade, talking politics. Uh, let's cut to that now and roll that tape. Okay, we are now joined by Natalie Shore. She is a writer, organizer, and comedian. Uh, thank you for joining us, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be back. Yes. Uh, and you have a new, we, we were able to sneak peek a, uh, a piece that will be coming out in a publication of notes. Um, soon. In media, it's called the sneak peek. That's right. Professional. We got the preview. <laughs> um, about the end of Roe v. Wade and how this ultimately may not or likely will not motivate Democrats to come out to the polls uh, and won't have, you know, a, a negative impact really on, on the Republican Party either. So, you know, we're speaking now a, a couple of days after this, another sneak peek of a, of a decision. Uh, we're getting all our sneaks peeks in before June, before stuff really hits the fan. Um, but why don't we start with why you were motivated to write this piece? Because I'm, I'm assuming this was before you um, had the knowledge that we all just uh, acquired that uh, the court has decided or is likely deciding to, to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, so the piece, uh, which will come out, I believe, in June or July, uh, was planned as, um, you know, part of a themed issue on uh, a post-Roe world, uh, looking at that from many different angles. And so I was looking at it. Uh, specifically, you know, electorally, how it might how it might affect electoral politics. Uh, and I think that, you know, a lot of people yesterday, the other day with the leaked draft decision uh, and over the past couple of years, because, you know, it's, it's not as if I'm a soothsayer. This is something that, you know, people have seen the writing on the wall ever since uh, the Supreme Court decided to um, take up uh, the Dobbs case, which is the one that's uh, in Mississippi set to act as a pretext to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, the, the makeup of the court uh, made this outcome very very likely. Um, and of course, the makeup of the court with, you know, now six conservatives, as opposed to even five, uh, you know, there have been some key decisions where um, usually John Roberts flips and votes with the liberals that, you know, things like um, various ACA cases have been like that, where, you know, the, the conservative outcome didn't prevail. Um, but now they've got, you know, a, a, uh, conscience-guided moderate 
right wingers mm. uh, veto proof majority. Right. So they have six people. Uh, and I think as soon as Amy Coney Barrett came on board, um, you know, a lot of the states where the religious right does have a lot more power, where there's more social conservatism, I think did just start to pass laws more brazenly that they wouldn't have before. Uh, and so that's, you know, an important way to look at this, that it's not just, oh, the, the timing happened to be it's different justices. It's, you know, the anti-abortion movement uh, did this on purpose, passed something that they knew would be, you know, struck down or not even accepted uh, by higher courts just a couple of years ago, that that's now in play. Um, so I was trying to grapple with uh, the implications of that. And a lot of people uh, have, have talked about this as a potentially galvanizing moment, um, that this could really be, you know, a, a movement building moment for Democrats. Um, and I guess we can't rule that out on a limited basis in the short term. But overall, I think what makes me skeptical about that analysis is the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the reason that uh, the Democratic Party is electorally waning, and we can point to so many structural reasons why that's true. Um, you know, the the way that the Senate works, the way that proportional representation works, blah, 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 it, it really does favor um, Republicans in a lot of instances. Um, but I think it's also the fact that as education polarization has increased, um, with, you know, more more like young educated professionals being on the Democratic side, uh, it's 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 unclear where the Democratic Party is going to find those voters to, you know, defeat the right and Republicans. Um, and I also think it's important to realize that, uh, you know, abortion has become such a massive issue on the right, I think, for uh, you know, class reasons that are sometimes overlooked. Uh, ultimately, wealthy women um, will always be able to get an abortion. Um, that, you know, a lot of these restrictions, curtailments of these rights will uh, fall very dramatically on um, poor and uh, near poor women. And that that fits, fits very, you know, uh, fits very seamlessly within the rights project. So I think I think you have to see this as a class issue and it will require class war to get out of that. Uh, and so all of that is to say, why am I skeptical that this could be a flashpoint for Democrats? Um, because I think that to reconstitute the party and to build a durable base moving forward that could change the political landscape in this country, I think that you do need to reconstitute uh, these bases by class. I think that you need a resurgent class movement. And I don't see a way forward besides that. And well said. I mean, this is also... There's just so many different factors all contributing to this kind of a uh, tide shift in in the uh, in the halls of the Supreme Court, and this is all excluding you know just a basic reality that we cannot let Catholics into the highest seats of power in our country, <laughs> which is something people used to know, and then we let them in. Six months later, the Pope's dictating what happens in the halls of D.C. That's something that I called the moment Amy Coney Barrett got that seat. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, obviously, like when you look at the religious light, right, like Catholics are hardly, um, you know, you think of evangelicals, uh, but there is like a very strong Catholic legal tradition uh, that I hope you don't ask me too many follow up questions. about. 
<laughs> I haven't studied it too specifically, but you know, it is interesting that like all of these uh, legal professionals are all Catholic. I mean, it's like a Jesuit thing, I guess. Um, right. Maybe. Well, no, that I think that is interesting because it kind of dovetails into like uh, an abortion as abortion as a historical political question, because as you sort of reference in the piece, it was not, I mean, it's always been a contentious issue, right? But it wasn't as partisan of, of an issue uh, a few decades ago, right? There were, you know, you look at the history of Roe v. Wade, there were a lot of liberal Republicans who were involved in, um, you know, the decision for Roe v. Wade and, and the case in Roe v. Wade and there were conservative Democrats who were anti-abortion. Uh, and it does seem that that sort of moment where Catholics were kind of let into the fold of the religious right comes when um, abortion gets sort of uh, de-scrambled, as it were, as a, as a partisan issue. Uh, can you talk about that moment of in the 80s uh, with with Reagan and how the Republicans really came to take up anti-abortion as like a, a cause du jour? Yeah. So, um, you know, this this history has been documented by a lot of people and argued about. But, you know, my my synthesis is basically this. Um, you are right that you know, earlier on um, when when abortion was on the rise as a, you know, very, very contentious, controversial issue that people would argue about, uh, but didn't necessarily have a partisan character and didn't even necessarily have a strictly religious character besides, you know, the people who were most vocally against uh, abortion did tend to be working class Catholics who, you know, a big part of the democratic voting block at the time. And one thing I mentioned in the piece is, um, you know, my, I have a, I have a big Irish Catholic family from Chicago. Uh, my, my mom, um, she, she was one of nine kids and she and uh, a few of her brothers and sisters um, were dragged by my grandparents to a big row protest the day after the decision was handed down. And it was just, you know, I think just full of like Catholic Chicago. Uh, and that those were the only radars. It was not the only radars, but, you know, it wasn't, it didn't necessarily register as uh, the massive political flashpoint that it's become at the time. Um, and so I think, I think what happened uh, was a few things. One, I think, you know, in the, in the seventies, you have the rise of the women's movement and you have, you know, cultural backlash against it. A lot of people who, who do resent it. I think you have the decline of labor, uh, which I think, you know, uh, that, that, that has at the time was traditionally like a very strong um, institutional base for the, for the democratic party. Uh, and then I think, you know, you have a lot of um, massive vitriolic battles over segregation. Um, and I think, you know, you also have the rise of neoliberalism and you have uh, Reagan's coalition, basically, and this is simplified a little bit, but having the insight that, okay, um, you know, we can basically um, serve capital, give business and rich people everything they want and to, you know, build a constituency for it, we can link up with uh, this politically consolidated religious right who, you know, again, had uh, a lot of, uh, not to say that their personal religious commitments weren't ever sincere, but, you know, this was definitely like a um, reconstituted uh, political face for anti-segregation, for anti-feminism. I think that a lot of those grievances dovetailed into this very well. Um, and I think that, you know, you see the continuation of 
culture war ever since. And that that has been a way that the right has been able to, you know, drum up votes for oligarchy, basically. Um, You know, uh, obviously, there are many people working within the right and within that movement who are extremely religiously motivated, extremely sincere about, um, you know, bringing us back to the Stone Age in terms of uh, gender and family politics. Uh, but I do think it's important to see that within a broader context of top-down class war, uh, that that is why they play such a significant role um, in that political coalition and why why the right needs that base so badly is because, you know, ultimately uh, their top-line goals are excruciatingly unpopular. Right. And you know, I'm cu- curious, like, and this is sort of a cynical question, but I guess I'm asking about cynical people. But like on the other end of that, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, especially in the past week, about how Democrats have had the opportunity to codify um, reproductive rights into law and they just haven't taken it. To some extent, do you think that is the other side of that coin, like them kind of playing chicken with the right, if you will, to like get you know, to motivate their base to come out on the basis that, well, if you don't, then the Republicans are going to take away your your right to an abortion, where, whereas they even though they have the power in a way to to make this less of a, a pressing issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that that's definitely part of it. I think that, um, you know, the way that the way that uh, Democrats have used abortion as like a vote mobilizer can at times be very cynical, especially, you know, not, they obviously haven't um, passed federal legislation protecting the right to an abortion, but even things like, you know, um, uh, taking abortion out of the Affordable Care Act uh, was, you know, uh, something that, uh, something that Democrats did that people are critical of. Um, you can, you know, d- debate the extent. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think, and, and if you really, you know, it's funny because someone pointed this out to me within the past year and I, I felt silly that I hadn't noticed it before, but it really is striking. Um, every time democratic politicians talk about this issue, um, they don't say abortion. Mm. They say, they say choice. They say, you know, uh, reproductive health, like they, they, they use euphemisms, but, um, you know, even, even just at this political juncture that, that they're, um, you know, bending over backwards, not to say abortion, I think really is, um, once, once you notice it, you cannot unsee it. Uh, and I, I, I see it every time there's, you know, a quote or a statement from a Democrat now. Um, I also think that there is, and another thing I kind of critiqued in the piece, I think that, uh, at least until relatively recently, I think that there was this idea that there were a ton of single issue abortion voters in this country. Um, And I think that there are a lot of people who like care about abortion very much and maybe are, you know, attached to a church community who don't pay much attention to politics. And if you ask them why they vote the way they do, uh, they will say abortion. Um, But I think that that, and so I think, you know, Democrats sometimes worry about alienating them. Um, I mean, I think that that is a silly way to look at voter behavior simply because, um, you know, if it weren't for abort, like I, I'm not, I'm not too convinced that people who are very embedded in these communities, I mean, voting is socially produced, right? Like you tend to vote for 
the person that people in your life and in your communities are voting for. Um, so, so the idea that these are, you know, super malleable voters, if you only don't say abortion, I think is odd. Um, and I think in the past couple of years, we've pretty much seen that like the, uh, hypothetical, you know, abortion voters, these, you know, like white, um, evangelical adjacent people in rural and red States, um, yeah, I think that I think that like swapping in panic about CRT or panic about like trans kids healthcare um, has has pretty much you know been a been a uh, seamless swap in for abortion in a lot of cases. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a, a one of your strongest points over at the end of the piece because um, the like visceral emotion that abortion drives out in, you know, uh, uh, anti-abortion zealots and these people who show up in the streets and march over this stuff um, was very religiously motivated. Like if you are fully on the anti-abortion train, it's because you believe there's a holocaust of babies' souls. And if you're not out there defending them from the flames, who would be? But now the pitch and, and, and din of everything happening in uh, mass culture in this country is already at 11 all of the time. So it doesn't have to have like a religious base anymore. It can just be like race theory. Your kids are getting it before they're human trafficked, which the media is lying to you about. And you can't turn the anxiety up any higher than it already is. Yeah. I mean, another thing, like as of, um, you know, a relative, I forget what, when this poll was issued, but the you know, the the influence of the religious right within the broader right wing coalition is actually like going down slightly. Um, they, they do have these other things. And I think one thing that didn't make it into the piece because it had a very tight word count. But I think it was like while I was writing this thing, I saw a tweet from it's like Life News HQ or something. It's, it's like a an outlet that just publishes uh, news about abortion and abortion rights from a pro-life perspective. And they have like a lot of tweets dunking on um, like trans issues. Abortion has served a certain role for them for a while, um, but, you know, they, they can grab at another issue and use it just as cynically. Right. It's interesting how things, you know, like 10, 20 years ago, abortion was, you know, le- you know, still sort of, uh, up in the air to less of an extent, but, you know, it was mostly basically legal and accessible in every state and nobody could get gay married. Uh, and now it seems like that's going to be kind of swapping. Um, but it is still like a probably even more now is like a minoritarian issue. Um, like, how is that going to hold politically in America to have you know, whether people are Democrat, Republican or independent, there's there is now a pretty solid majority in America that um, approves of Roe v. Wade and, and does not want abortion banned. Uh, is, is that a real, I mean, I guess it is a real possibility, but, but how is that going to hold politically to have just this minoritarian grip on, uh, social policy in a country that doesn't really support it? Yeah. So, you know, one, one thing I think it's important to note when you say, you know, it's, it's been, it's been legal this whole time. Like that is, that is technically true. Um, But since Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a case uh, I want to say decided in 1992, basically decided that you can put some restrictions on abortion rights, uh, but 
they cannot place an undue burden on a woman's right to choose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've been squabbling about what constitutes an undue burden ever since. And, you know, as it may surprise you, uh, a lot of conservative states have decided that, you know, having, having one abortion clinic in the whole state that you need, uh, you know, an ultrasound and four day waiting period and, um, you know, hospital admission privileges for clinicians performing it, et cetera, you know, like pl placing just an insane gauntlet of uh, onerous rules on this, you know, safe outpatient procedure, uh, that that doesn't constitute an undue burden. And so all of that is to say, um, you know, abortion access is already quite restricted yeah. uh, in a lot of places. And in some cases, that also applies to liberal states, um, you know, not necessarily always for legal reasons, although sometimes, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a type of care that is politically controversial and that a lot of uh, clinicians don't offer um, is, is part of their practice for, for those reasons. So, you know, uh, we have been living in a situation already, I think for quite a while that somewhat, uh, you know, it, it's not the same. It's still going to get worse after the fall of Roe. But I think that, you know, these, these difficulties have existed, especially especially for um, people who need abortion most. So people who are, you know, poor people of color, um, people who might, you know, struggle to meet all these qualifications to raise the money to do it. Um, it's going to be harder for them. Uh, I think, you know, another thing that I think it's important to remember and that I said at the beginning is that, you know, wealthy women will always be able to get them. Um, that's, that's not to say, don't worry about it. I think it's to understand like what, what the landscape is going to look like. It's going to look like it's, you know, a much easier procedure for privileged people to get, uh, than people who aren't and that we have to approach it in that way. Um, you know, there's also, there's also medication abortions, um, that I didn't get to go into in the piece. Um, those will, Perhaps I, I think that they just became uh, just over like half or majority of abortions last year were medication abortions. Um, and those are, you know, maybe a little like a little easier to evade regulations where there are some. So so there might be an uptick in those. But, um, you know, it, it's it's going to be it's going to be grim moving forward. And right. it's all right. Yeah, if you want to see what. Uh you know, an industry looks like after you criminalize it, look at what the drug trade has turned into since 1970, you know? Yeah. Uh, the actual practice of doing drugs is not that dangerous. The practice of uh, getting past a gang to get your weed or whatever is an entirely different story. Yeah. Yeah. Though I think that's an important point because I definitely don't mean to gloss over like what it, because in many places now it's effect almost effectively, if not entirely effectively, illegal or impossible for uh, women to get abortions. And that, you know, especially affects women who might have or people who might have um, endometriosis or issues like that. Uh, so if somebody, you know, has just a short period of time, um, you know, now people are saying, well, you can still go to another state, but they could uh, make that a problem too. make it, it, they can't they crack down potentially in in 
really solid anti-abortion states and people traveling across state lines or maybe in states where it's legal, they prevent people from coming in or like how many of these blockades are, are potentially going to be put up for people sort of traveling and trying to to do this, um, you know, out of state? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's definitely a concern um, and that also triggers the idea that, um, you know, criminalization is going to be uh, something that could be on the rise. And that's also something that will obviously have a strong class character. Um, you know, if, if it's, if they're going to try to deal with this through the criminal legal system and, you know, then we'll see charges being laid against women of color. Um, I think that that's definitely possible. Um, I, I still, you know, ultimately I, I do think, I, I think that, like it's important to realize the like proportionality of like risk and burden um, between the different classes. And I, I say that just because I think that that uh, is inherently intertwined with, um, you know, how how we have to respond to this, which is top down. It's, it's an active top down class war. Um, it, it is something that we have to push back against using the tools of class war. Um, using, you know, solidarity, using uh, mass mobilization, using direct action, and et cetera. Yeah. And so when the, the right says, as they love to say, like, oh, we're, we don't want to criminalize women who get abortions. We just want their doctors to, to be hung or whatever. The, the women are going to be off the hook. That legally probably is not going to be the case. Uh, I, I think we would all guess. Um, and the people who are going to be criminalized the most seems like you're saying are, are underprivileged women of, of color. Um, well, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I, I think that certainly like healthcare providers um, are also going to be threatened with this kind of thing. And that that yeah. will just, you know, essentially restrict the supply uh, of what's available. Um, you know, I, I, I just think that, there's a very strong historical precedent of governing and controlling uh, like reproductive just like the reproductive rights and agency of people of color uh, and dealing with that through the criminal justice system. Um, And that's, you know, not even a board, like the way that we saw women being, um, charged with various crimes for, you know, doing drugs, while pregnant, uh, and, and that that led to criminal charges and just knowing how many things like this have been dealt through with, through the criminal legal system. I think that it is, um, a very reasonable concern that, that, that could see an uptick, uh, after the fall of Roe. It's definitely a very uncertain and scary, scary time. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely am encouraged by what you're saying about, you know, class solidarity. Um, and I know we're all supporters of, of Medicare for all, which I think is a, a class issue. Um, but should advocates of that use abortion more often as like a talking point as like we're, we, what we're supporting here is uh, not just all, not just doctor visits, but abortion, like that this is, that's healthcare and that should be a right of every American. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that Medicare for all um, must include uh, free access to abortion. Um, 
you know, without apology on demand. Uh, I think that that's a very important part of it. Um, you know, if, if there are, and I think, you know, definitely, um, removing the Hyde amendment, I think is probably like the incremental step there. Uh, we don't, we don't have Medicare for for all right now, obviously, but there are a ton of people who are on uh, Medicare and Medicaid who can't get abortions now uh, because of the Hyde Amendment. Um, and so I think that, you know, that that could be uh, potentially something that becomes more of a salient political demand. Uh, I think that it has kind of within the past few years as more people have found out about it. And, um, you know, the politics of Medicaid have in some cases been like surprisingly durable. So it's something that, uh, you know, has, has come up more. Um, but again, I mean, I, th I think the, the more immediate issue is that Democrats are holding on to power by a hair. Um, and, and, you know, what, what is the solution for um, the genuine and like lasting leftward shifts in this country? Um, you know, that, that requires a reconstituted class base and Medicare for all is a key demand in like developing that base. I also think like, you know, the, the resurgent labor movement is absolutely central to that project. So it's kind of a roundabout answer, I guess. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, that's great. And uh, when you said the Hyde Amendment, that is like public funds for abortion, right? Can you just explain a little bit the, the history of that? And I believe the, if I'm not mistaken, our current uh, Catholic president was had a, had a hand in, in passing that. Yeah. So the Hyde Amendment is, I, I want to say it's a, it's a, it's a budget rider uh, that basically stipulates that federal funding will not be used for abortions. Um, and so, you know, that means that anyone on Medicare and a lot of people on Medicaid, depending on what state, uh, can't be used for abortion. Um, a lot of states do fund abortions with like the, the state pot of money with Medicaid, um, but you know, a lot of the people who need abortions don't live in those places. Um, and it's, you know, been something that I think that for reasons we discussed before, Democrats have been relatively happy to leave alone. Uh, I think that they don't necessarily want to be arguing about abortion all the time and have tried to avoid it. Um, you know, I, I think that the idea that oh, if some people don't like abortion, then they shouldn't have to use their tax dollars to pay for it, uh, I think strikes them as like a very reasonable, fair argument, even though it's total bullshit. Uh, if you want people to have access to abortion, like they they need to be able to have access to abortion and, you know, it, whatever, whatever healthcare, like however, however they get their healthcare, that's, that's what they're going to need. Right. That's how taxes work. When you don't like something, your money doesn't go to it. Like in Walden. <laughs> I mean, if I, yeah, like if you have to make a list of like all the fucking things I don't want my tax dollars to go to in the United States, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you, you could list, obviously, like, I think abortion is a good thing, but like, even if I didn't, I don't know, you could list like bajillions of things, a uh, lot of, a lot of bad stuff 
happening with our tax dollars these days. All of the stuff, all of the tax money they get out of me buys like one one hundredth of a javelin missile and then like (laughs) devastates my economy for a year. And I just sleep with that every day. Yeah. Mine only goes to Medicare. It's I check. That's a good gig if you can get it. I don't know how you (laughs) sign that away. Um, I did want to take some time just, um, I have a few questions about this. I thought that maybe you'd be a good person to ask uh, about the original Roe versus Wade case in uh, 1973. And this, some people would think this is a silly thing to get stuck on. But uh, I learned today, Jane Roe, who is the Roe of Roe versus Wade, is Mm -hmm. like a legal name. It's a pseudonym for Norma McCorvey. Yep. And they have her on the record as Jane Roe. I know about Jane Doe. What is Roe? What the fuck happened? Yeah, so it was some goofy thing. You know, the case was brought in Texas, and I think it happened to be that there was another um, unrelated case about something else that had uh, a Jane Doe plaintiff already uh like being heard in the same session and so they just went with jane roe you get to freestyle in that case yeah i believe. Yeah, I mean i i had never heard of that either and had always had always wondered and then doing the research for this piece i did hear someone say that that they just had to like pick a different letter uh which i thought was funny <laughs> yeah that's wild yeah yeah and so i mean if you if you read about the case you know norma mccorvey basically was this woman uh, who already already had some kids that I think um, her mother had taken custody of um, and, you know, struggled with struggled with employment, struggled with uh, drugs and did not want to have another child. And somehow uh, was was referred. I, I don't remember who referred her, but she linked up with um, this this very young feminist attorney who was basically looking for a plaintiff withstanding that could, you know, she she was she was trying to uh, get abortion in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and there were a couple other lawyers kind of doing similar things. Uh, within those few years. And, you know, my, my understanding of the, the, the law stuff is, you know, limited, but basically like if you are uh, a plaintiff, you have to have standing and you can be like, you know, you can be denied for for any number of reasons, but uh, her case was allowed to go forward. Um, She did end up having the kid uh, because these laws take a long time. Uh, and then Norma McCorvey had this bizarre, like post row afterlife where in the immediate aftermath, she was kind of this like fetid mascot among like professional class feminist types. You know, she did some, some speeches at different feminist events, uh, and was like, you know, hobnobbing with like the glorious dynams of the world, uh, who would, you know, use her, I think, you know, mascot, I think is like a pretty fair way to to describe it. Uh, and then a, a few years later, she ended up linking up with the religious right and kind of became this a figure. Twist. Yeah, that she became this like anti-abortion figure and would, you know, make a big deal out of, you know, I was I was Jane Roe and I regret my abortion. Um, I've, I've seen the light. 
And, you know, just, she died just a couple of years ago. And like, just as she was dying, she basically, uh, you know, said that, said that she had been lying about that, but, you know, she's definitely a complicated figure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, she, she's, she's got a very complicated backstory and it's, it's kind of difficult to tell when she's, when she's telling the truth and when she's not. Um, but you know, she, she was definitely just like a, a small bit character in the like overall row narrative. Um, but definitely an interesting side plot. It's kind of a media thing you see a lot now that if you're like an average Joe person, and then you become the abortion celebrity and are brought into this media class for the year or two, it can be very tempting to stay there by whatever means necessary until, you know, you figure something else out. Yeah. I mean, there's always like, you know, being, being like the apostate for like some sacred cow is like, you know, a a solid, a solid grift game. If you can, if you can stomach it, you know? So yeah, like very, very famous avatar for abortion rights going pro-life, you know, yeah, you can, you can make some money off of that. You can make some money off of being like the post-left anti-woke person (laughs) too. You know, I mean, there, there's some competition for that title at the moment, but you know, make some cash on that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I I just watched uh, AKA Jane Roe, which is a documentary about her and, and (laughs) and, like she came out in the eighties and because originally she had said, and this was not part of the case, but she had said, you know, to, to media that she had been, had been raped. And then later on in the eighties, she'd said that, well, that actually wasn't true. And, you know, her reason for saying that I think was, was kind of complicated, but she got kind of dumped by the pro pro choice movement as it's called at the time. And then um, she was working at a, a women's health clinic and, and this pro-life like kind of really extreme right guy shows up and moves in right next door and like slowly kind of like wins her over. Um, It's pretty sad in a way, but that he also gave her an allowance for many years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely was, was taken care of financially, but that is interesting to think about like what, because since Roe v. Wade and this sort of have crept up slowly. And then by the nineties, this was like really a thing and continues to be is, is harassment uh, sometimes, you know, murder of, yeah. of uh, women getting abortions or abortionists, uh, usually like abortion doctors and stuff. Um, I, I'm, do you think like laws that, you know, going forward in states, do you think that's going to embolden them or, or will that, that sort of transfer to the machinery of the state and like that there won't be a need for that anymore. And it will be like, you know, bootstrap cops kicking in doors and, and ending abortions and stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that like those people, like this strong terrorist core might persist, um, you know, might, might end up busing people to clinics in blue areas or whatever they're going to do. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if they'll get like bolder um, or if they'll just decide to, you know, stop doing that, and be productive. Like that somehow feels, uh, I guess, uh, unlikely, but it's, it's a good question. I haven't, I haven't actually 
I haven't considered that aspect of it. Right. So obviously I'm not, I don't have any sympathy for them and I think they're awful people, but like from their vantage point, this is like the lead up to the civil war. Like they consider abortion as murder is worse than slavery. So there's like some contradiction that has to, to come to a head and in their view. Um, But God, yeah, it is scary how we have judicial people in power who feel close to the same way as, as they do. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I think, going to be like a push from certain corners to, uh, you know, like enact a federal ban. Um, Now that Roe is going to fall and it's going to fall to the states, like there will be some people who who want to take it to the next level. Um, But I. I first of all, you know, they they do need a certain number of people for that. you know, a certain number of like Republican votes and, um, you know, let's, let's try to make that not happen. Mm -hmm. But I also do wonder, um, how much, how much purchase a straight up federal ban would have within the parts of the Republican party that are, um, you know, again, uh, I think very, very focused on serving capital and who have, you know, gone with this because they're completely cynical assholes who don't care about poor people. Um, but, uh, and, you know, again, this is part of, part of why I keep bringing up the class issue. Like, I, I don't think that a lot of people who still hold power on the right ever actually want a situation where like their mistresses can't get an abortion. <laughs> You know, like not to not to be not to be glib right. about it and not to undermine, um, I think, like the very real danger of even playing a game of chicken like this and getting as far as they've gotten. Like that's that's a very serious issue that will hurt a lot of people. Um, but but I don't I don't think that the federal ban or the potential of a federal ban will have the same like galvanizing rhetorical power as anti-abortion politics have had up to this point. Uh, And, you know, largely, I think that's because, as I said before, I think that they will move on to other culture war projects um, that, you know, unfortunately do have a lot of purchase among the base right now. And, you know, if anything, in the past couple of years, the way that the, like, voting blocks have shifted gradually over the past several years with, you know, some of the like educated suburban voters going to the Democratic Party and some more um, like working class white voters uh, increasingly drifting toward the Republican Party. Um, Within the past couple of years, like opposition to abortion has dropped a little bit. Like there's, there's been a, a slight, like, like it's, it's, it, it's not, it, the, the issue does not loom as large within their coalition, uh, given the people who are voting for uh, Republicans as, as it did a generation ago. Um, I know you have to leave in a minute here, but uh, this does seem like a natural segue to this last thing I wanted to talk about, which is the makeup of the Supreme court. Because I remember when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died uh, and every time she got sick approaching death, we were all having this uh, culture wide conversation about like, when do you get your 
extremely geriatric uh, uh, judge to resign? And uh, tactically, when is the right political motive to uh, um, institute somebody who is a respectful, somebody who's respectful of the law and our institutions into this like cabal of people who have a job until death at the highest form of our government? And in hundreds of years later, after we've decided to do this thing, just seems so supremely anti-democratic and uh, flies in the face of everything the country is supposed to be running on that I can't imagine how we're going to maintain any kind of narrative that we are a bastion of democracy while we have these robed (laughs) elites who control our laws in an unelected position in the back. So, yeah, uh, people talk about packing the court. Is there any any push for just abolishing the court? Like this, it goes down to the framework of the Constitution and the way the entire government's set up. But it's it's really silly. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it is important to note that only like 15 or 20 percent of the country supported overruling Roe outright. And these, you know, this this five, possibly six person majority uh, was able to do that, Um, buttressed by this like, you know, decades long influx of billionaire cash to basically push the country rightward. Um, You know, a lot of these are federalist society types um, that, you know, was an organization explicitly uh, poised to push the judiciary rightward and like drown these people and like right-wing legal theory from the time that they enter law school, et cetera. Um, so that's, I mean, that's like very straightforwardly bad, uh, as for, you know, abolishing the court versus court packing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I found it pretty convincing, uh, some like Matt Carp is, uh, a 19th century historian that writes at Jacobin a lot. And he's written about, uh, the fact that there was this, you know, 19th century, legal tradition of just straight up ignoring the court and doing what <laughs> do anyway. Uh, and like, I, I mean, sure. Like that sounds, that sounds enticing. Um, I mean, I think that, I think that we have to like build a completely different political context to get to that point. Uh, and that, you know, court packing, I think is probably like the intermediary solution that seems like, more politically feasible, even if it doesn't ultimately like address the root of the structural issues that brought us here. Um, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're obviously not going to do it before the midterms and no, certainly uh, not. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, it's hard to imagine when we might get to the point where there is a, uh, you know, a robust democratic, governing majority who will do that kind of thing, which is why I come back to like, well, to change the Democratic Party, we need to, you know, reconstitute its base to basically like build the numbers and the support that we need. We do need a class-based movement. Uh, We need like a completely different uh, or like largely changed voting block, et cetera. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot that needs to be done to like change this on a semi-permanent or more permanent basis so that we can actually, you know, move forward politically. And, you know, I keep coming back to, it sounds like it's a like remote connection, but the labor movement is, is what that is. Um, You know, any country 
that has had a like leftward turn that has developed like social democratic programs that has, uh, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of cases that has protected abortion, um, you know, any, any country that's like gone from like right, right-wing gloom to more sustainable, like quasi-social democratic uh, landscape. And, you know, even then it's, it's one of those things where like, you have to fight to keep it. Uh, it's not smooth sailing from there, but like every single time historically, that's required like a lot of union density and a robust labor movement. And there is like absolutely no way around that imperative that I have seen uh, politically or historically. You just got to win the class war. Yeah. And, you know, to win the class war, you need to talk to your coworkers. You need to build solidarity among your class. And, you know, to to the extent that we are really like culturally divided and like people talk about vibes and it's kind of like a, a funny thing, but it's true that like, you know, the, the cultural vibe and like what resonates with you if you are an East coast city liberal, uh, with, you know, a, a professional class job versus if you are, um, like a, a working class person in a liberal, liberal area, you probably, I mean, you almost certainly, you watch different television shows, you talk to different people, you're part of different communities. Um, you know, everyone, you know, is doing something and saying something different and, you know, people, people go with what their social universe does. Um, and so, you know, I think it, I think it would behoove people to remember, like, okay, I have political convictions that I feel very strongly about, as do the two of you. Um, and you know, something like being pro-abortion, like everyone in my life is pro-abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, you can like think of like I don't know, like my grandma, but who's who's died. But you know, like there are there are exceptions. But you know. I, I come from a very like a social universe that's very supportive of abortion rights. Uh, and that's that's not true for everybody. And, you know, there's there's one way to build solidarity between people and to change their social universe. And, you know, I think I think that's the labor movement, the role that like churches and, you know, even like the NRA is a mass yeah. membership organization. Uh, you know, they have institutions like that. Um, you know, we we need. We need unions. We need union halls. We need, um, you know, to uh, like a mass education campaign uh, about what solidarity is and, you know, why why abortion is tethered to uh, everyone's ability to have a dignified life. And the fact that, you know, you deserve autonomy from your boss uh, and autonomy over your kids. And frankly, you know, like I, I think abortion is a necessary condition of a free and dignified life, but it's not a sufficient one. Um, you know, I think that the like uh, the abortion rights must also expand to more explicitly include uh, reproductive rights and reproductive justice writ large that, you know, it's not just can you get an abortion, it's can you parent um, and to support people's decisions to, you know, have the family that they want to have as many children as they want to, and to space them out, uh, as they would like to. I think that that's something that I, I want to be able to guarantee every person. Um, we got to let you go here for your thing. Andrews, did you have any more questions before we free Natalie into the wild? <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, you know, what, what specific, uh, campaigns do you think, um, people could or should get involved in on, on how to, to fight for this issue on a class basis. 
Yeah. So, you know, on, a, on an immediate level, I do think that there's like a lot of value in, um, you know, joining up with protest efforts, uh, with like direct action, whatever's, whatever ha- is happening around you. Um, something like, you know, DSA is almost certainly, uh, keyed into those kind of things. So, so go find DSA, see what they're doing and donate to, you know, abortion funds, which, you know, aren't just like Planned Parenthood has some great clinics, but it also just, you know, runs campaign PR for corporate Democrats. And that's its whole deal uh, at the, the political level. So, you know, donate to abortion funds so that people can pay for abortions directly, people who need them. Um, so I think that those things are important. Uh, and then I think, you know, more, more broadly, uh, I keep saying the labor movement. I mean, I think, you know, if you're, if you're not in a union, but you do have a boss, then you should have a union, learn how to organize one, um, join, join DSA to see what projects they're doing, uh, vote for class struggle candidates, campaign for class struggle candidates, uh, a whole lot of those things. No, no one way to skin a cat, but you know, got to find a way we have to skin this cat (laughs) you've got to do it yeah there's too much fur on the cat Uh, too good for too long (laughs) (laughs) um thank you so much for coming on natalie shore where can our listeners find you at home and abroad uh well they can find me in boston um please don't come to my house (laughs) um no but um twitter i guess is probably where we all waste most of our time. Uh, okay. So, yeah, Natalie Shirley on Twitter. Sometimes you come up with a stupid pun over a decade ago and find yourself stuck with it. So S-U-R-E-L-Y. I think it's great. Thank um, you. They, <laughs> you knocked it out of the park. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's been Natalie Shore, and uh, we, we thank you all for... Um, listening to this nutritionist, nutritionist, nutritional interview, infotainment mm. information segment, um, fiber. It's, it's a dark topic as are most things we really discuss on this, this program. Um, but, all topics outside of God's light, are dark topics. Uh, yeah. Well, God's light is getting brighter depending on who you believe, but yeah, one thing I yeah. wanted to, to note we didn't get to is there is all sorts of browbeating, of course, about uh, one of my favorite topics, the counterfactual, right? Because everybody is saying it was fuck. If you voted for Jill Stein in 2016, this is on you. Then other people are saying, if you voted for Nader in 2000, this is on you. Or if really? you voted for Bernie in the primary, this is on you. Uh, if you, you know, downplayed the importance of the Supreme court, this is on you. Uh, it can't be on all of these people. Here's the thing. Like it, you can say, I will admit this. All right. If you n- isolate one of these counterfactuals, maybe. Okay. Maybe if people in Florida, although. The you think they're going thing, too crazy with it? Well, here's the thing. You can't like pick and choose. If you're actually going to take a counterfactual seriously, you can't pick and choose the one that is the everything hinges on because I could just as easily say, well, if you're Ruth Bader Ginsburg and you didn't retire in 2013, this is on you. Like you can't blame Jill Stein and not Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. Or really Hillary Clinton for running a terrible campaign. 
I blame Senator Susan Sarandon for her laws against children and the unborn. Right. You could blame Susan Sarandon, but then you would also have to blame Susan Collins. You know, you got to Susan Susan. Do you uh, feel like any of these arguments are ever made in, in intellectual tradition, Anders? It just seems to me like it's been designated that to a certain uh, uh, slice of liberal, the social democratic and left section of the America's politics is just the whipping boy when bad things happens. And when yeah. you're upset, you turn and you whip them. You say, this is you. You took the actress from Charmed and you did this. <laughs> Well, they're split, dude. That is crazy how the two witches in our popular media uh, from the Charm program have gone in divergent directions. Is the other, this is the question no one asks about that. Is the third witch in Charmed a MAGA witch? There was a third witch in Charmed, isn't it? I thought it was just first of all, there's never just two witches. No, they got to be a trio. I guess it is. Yeah, they're always a trio. They have a bubbling brew. Okay. Oh, yeah, there are three. Uh, who's the third actress? That's you made me feel so crazy for a second. Are there three <laughs> witches in Charmed? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, while I figure that out, um, so Nancy Pelosi's daughter is, of course, chiding what the left and your, the usual routine. Her mom is straight up supporting the last pro-life House Democrat in his reelection bid. In his primary challenge, he's running against a pro-choice, pro-abortion rights uh, woman candidate who is supported by, you know, elements of the progressive left who they all blame for everything. Uh, And this is his eight mile. Yeah. Like, how do you justify? It's just it's a joke when they do this shit. Um, Oh, wait. Okay, I guess. Uh, Rose McGowan actually was a a third season joiner. So there were two. Oh, Shannon really? Doherty and Holly Marie Combs. I wonder what they're just which is traditionally three is a magical number and witches are often in threes. But I don't know the source material that well. And I apologize to anyone I've offended with my remarks. You better. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, so pro-life Democrats. Pro-life Democrats, they're bad. Get them out. I mean, this we're people were warning about this a long time ago, and that's the thing is like, you know, this is why quote unquote purity tests end up being importante somewhere down the line because you know they enable that. Uh, that's going to make a federal bill that would make abortion legal all across the country more difficult. If you're keeping, you know, the house is going to be close. It's the Democrats probably aren't going to hold the house, but if you had uh Quaylar out of there and Cisneros in there, then that would be one less person to worry about when we are talking about abortion rights, uh, which is nominally something the house leadership supports. So if they wanted to pass a bill codifying it, which it's not clear they want to do, they're making it harder on themselves by supporting this guy. It's just, it is just transparently stupid. You know, I'm taking bets on them passing that bill. That is not going to happen. It's, it's definitely not, but um, I'm hope I'm just jinxing myself. Um, oh, but here's the other thing I wanted to say. 
now we're bringing up charmed popular media pop culture uh love it i'll admit i haven't seen the whole thing but have you seen the movie obvious child i have jenny slate right to my mind i think fired that, for swearing i might add to anyone who that's relevant oh, for that's on this right. show fired from cool. saturday night live for swearing and for having a, a dirty mouth but an obvious uh i won't say it she's not a mistake child. she's an adult yeah she was and legally she can do that as we've discussed you can set you can swear on the air if it's after 10 p.m you can do basically anything you want it's a network regulation not a but sometimes you shouldn't right but beyond so the portrayal of abortion in that movie is i think a fundamentally i mean it's of course about the complicated emotional situation there but uh, would you say it's it's a positive portrayal overall of abortion yeah yeah because you want funny jenny slate to continue her her funny life in that film okay from what i remember that is basically the only example i can think of um of abortion being portrayed in a positive and or justified light because the closest other two examples i can think of are juno where it's not like a pro-life caricature right it's not like this christian thing but she ends up not getting the abortion and and my mom actually saw that movie and hated it because she thought it was like anti-abortion propaganda um or blue valentine which is a great movie and there's that's a scene ryan reynolds right ryan gosling oh pfft. ryan gosling my mistake yeah him and michelle williams and there's a scene where she's getting an abortion and she decides to abort the abortion uh and i forgot whose joke that is it's credit you to, gotta get a different doctor to come in and kill the other doctor <laughs> you have to you have to have them go back in time and yeah but she said she's like, no, I don't want to do this. And to the credit of the movie, the abortionists are really cool about it. They're all like, oh, she she wants us to stop. We're going to stop. Let's call it off. But it's another example of a woman deciding not to get an abortion. So yeah. as far as I can tell, there's really only one movie. Maybe I'm there's you know, thousands of movies out there. Maybe I'm missing something, but it doesn't seem like there's really any. Positive portrayal, someone deciding to get an abortion and going okay. And I know movies got to have conflict, but maybe the conflict is with, you know, the pro-life people outside the clinic harassing you. Um, My I, guess I is would be it's it's more subversive in Hollywood to have a isn't abortion complicated ending than one that is just like, obviously, abortion good. We all know that. We are I guess a so, bunch of but, liberals in Hollywood. But like Hollywood... It, you know, obviously you can't really get away with a big budget anti-war movie or anti-corporate stuff, but abortion is supposed to be like one of their things that they're supportive of, right? Why aren't they funding more pro-abortion? Why aren't they funding movies that make abortion look fun? I don't That's know. Really abortion comedies. Doing. Yeah, of which there's one, but it sounds like it's still, even with that one, it sounds like it's still kind of a, a difficult situation. What if they did one where it's an about an abortionist and they have just an amazing time performing? The right. <laughs> they love what they do. Yeah. They never work a day in their life because they're always going ham on uteruses. They hate. Yeah. 
I agree. I think that no, nobody's, nobody wants to pick up slapstick anymore. Nobody wants to have fun anymore. It's true. The world is so serious all the time. Let's have a, a fun abortion movie for once. I'm totally with you. The villain could be a really stubborn fetus. Oh, Although that's interesting. That that opens up another can of worms. Is is a villain a person? Can a can a non person <laughs> be a villain? Right. You're then getting into like tree of life territory. Like the villain is time or the evil in our hearts, or you know, right. something like that. Which is another thing I was thinking about. Scott Peterson is charging him with do- double homicide. Is does that change the legal standing of fetuses as well? I, who's Scott Peterson? He's the man who killed Lacey Peterson and his and Lacey's child. I believe Ugh. pretty sure he was charged with killing his pregnant wife. Um, and he, I'm pretty sure it was a double homicide. So does that then make or maybe it's past a certain, you know, number of weeks or whatever? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like you already go to jail for so long for a single homicide that I can't imagine can't imagine how much worse that would be but that that is legally dubious to say the least yeah don't kill women that's all i wanted to say at the end of the podcast (laughs) (laughs) all right Um, don't kill anybody and a fetus is nobody and if and and yeah fuck those depending on you know whatever the agreed upon if it's a late trimester, it does get kind of fishy there. There are some rules for this at the end that we're not talking about that today. Right. Right. So we'll see you guys on the weekend. Thanks for subscribing to the bonus feed. All right. Bye-bye. It's finished. It's boarded. <laughs>